Welcome to episode 524 with my guest, Duncan Trussell. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office, more like a waiting room. It doesn't suck. The website for this show and media handles is MentalPod, uh, website being MentalPod.com. Let's dive right into it. Um, actually, I, I want to share a conversation I had uh, earlier today with uh, a friend of mine. He's he's on about the fifth or sixth date with uh, with a girl, and they're hanging out, and she kind of shuts down on him. And he grew up in a house where his mom used silence as a as a weapon to to punish and so it brought up like all kinds of feelings in him you know he just wanted to run he was angry and he didn't express any of that um until he talked to me and then he he was like i don't know what to do and you know my thought is you gotta talk about that you know if you can't find the words to talk about it right then in that moment Talk about it later with that person after you collect your thoughts. Because if any relationship is going to last, in my opinion and in my experience, you got to be willing to have difficult conversations and to have them at the right time with the right words and the right tone of voice. And not like it needs to be perfect, but the the manner in which you disagree with a partner has everything to do with the longevity and intimacy in that relationship. And not only that, and I learned this from a therapist, when you come back together with somebody in a relationship after you've had a disagreement, assuming you can both do that respectfully, even if you wind up not agreeing on the thing that you disagreed over, if you can both just move on, your relationship can be stronger than before it began, before you had that that disagreement. And the other thing I think is the next time something comes up that kind of tightens your stomach that you don't know if you should speak up or not, it's a little less scary to speak up for yourself because there's been a track record of you speaking up for yourself and the two of you being able to communicate and be respectful to each other. Um, or you stab them in the face and get on Tinder. One of the two. These are some loves filled out by Rebecca, and she writes, I love when my husband kisses me while on his way to the kitchen for a snack, and I love the goofy look he makes when I walk in on him snacking on chips. I love watching black cat black cats slink through neighborhoods. Jesus, slow down, Paul. I love watching black cats slink through neighbors' gardens. My next-door neighbor has three black cats, and... Uh, I'm glad I don't believe in the omen of, of, of black cats, although I was just diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, and so maybe that's on them. Uh, I love seeing dogs sigh while sitting next to the window. Bonus points if they have old, sleepy faces. I love this, I, but when I see a dog with an old face, my first thought is, oh, you're going to be dead soon, and your owner is going to cry for eight days. I love the sound of hummingbirds' wings as they zip past my head. That's a great one. I always I have a lot of hummingbirds in my backyard, 
and uh, I'm always a little startled at first because they sound really similar to those gigantic bees that uh, that want to kill you. We are sponsored today, as always, by our online therapy provider, BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Uh, I'm a big fan. Been using them for years. Um, it, it's it's so nice not having to leave your house. It's so nice crying in your recliner. <laughs> That's where I like to suck on my thumb and relive painful experiences. But it's uh, it's just super convenient. Uh, the platform they have is really consistent. Uh, it, you know, by that I mean the video and all that kind of stuff. But I uh, I highly recommend it. They're licensed in all fifty states. And uh, you need to be over 18. Otherwise, they will direct you to teencounseling.com. Go check it out. We read Struggle in a Sentence surveys a lot of time on the podcast. And I don't know why, but I was just uh, kind of inspired to come up with my own uh, about codependency to die with the fewest people mad at me. Another one about codependence, tell me what to do so I can pick it apart. About sex addiction, I'm going to fuck away my childhood. I might have heard somebody share that one. Apologies if I'm uh, stealing stealing your thing. About uh, alcoholism and drug addiction, if I don't quit, I'll die. Let me think about it. Depression, nobody gets me like my pillow. Anxiety. The universe just unfriended me. PTSD. I'm fine as long as nothing reminds me of anything. Love addiction. Nice to meet you. Please don't leave me. I already created unrealistic expectations of how you'll rescue me from myself. And about perfectionism. If I fuck this up, they'll know I'm Hitler. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lure. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. ...let humans do this to each other? Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> I am here with Duncan Trussell. We we talked originally about doing this, what, the 1930s, was it? Yeah, I think it was the early 30s. Yeah, Churchill, a mutual friend. Wonderful guy, actually, very misunderstood. Yeah, stinks like cigars. But gives stinks. great hugs. Stinks. Great hugs, stinks, but he gives those. He is, but bear hug. Hug. Would you call it a bear hug? Oh, yeah. It's like a bear that's been smoking cigars and yes. sweating in some horrible forest. But and, God, then he, he and then he demands that you rub his bald head while he hugs you, which I, I think is it. endearing. I love it. I love yeah. him. I miss him a lot. Uh, 
for the people that aren't familiar with you, uh, Duncan's a stand-up comic, a podcaster, a producer. Uh, he's got a great show on Netflix called The Midnight Gospel. It's it's a really creative, touching, weird. Uh, how would you how would you even de- de- describe it? You know, thank you for saying that. I, um, I, I, you know, I, there's a term uh, for this kind of film that I like called mumblecore. You ever heard that before that term? I have not. Mumblecore, basically like slacker, you know, it's just people talking, the Duplass brothers have put out some incredible mumblecore films, but it's just a form of indie film that has this like lo-fi quality to it so it it grabs this sort of i i can't it does the same thing that lo-fi music does there's a kind of if it's done if it works there's a kind of vulnerability that you that a lack of pretense yeah a lack of pretense and just a, a a more realistic way of looking at life through cinema you know and, and so i think we in retrospect i thought oh it's mumblemation like we made some kind of mumbly like uh lo-fi animation thing mm-hmm. um but i don't i don't really know how i would categorize it or describe it uh i think that's act- one of the things that's kind of charming about it is there's nothing there's nothing like it out there and y- you know, I, I, I'm sure I'm not giving anything away, but uh, there, there are audio selections from your podcast that are then uh, animation is is created over those. So you get the the intimacy and the vulnerability of a podcast conversation. And I'm thinking in particular of the one with your your late mom, mm-hmm. which is the season finale of uh, season one of uh, of Midnight Gospel, and it's such. A beautiful, uh, I don't even know how to, I, I want to say weird, but it's not weird in, in that one. Some of the other episodes are, are certainly, you know, uh, odd and weird. Uh, but the one with your mom, uh, talk about that, that, that episode. And how long was it after your mom passed that you created this episode? Well, the podcast obviously existed. Uh, since she passed in 2013 so the podcast existed but the so se- i guess seven six or seven years mm-hmm. something like that six or seven years it was you know it was uh we knew we were going to use that episode but at the time i think making that episode helped me get through the grief that was still there to some degree i mean there's always grief when you lose a parent but uh and you were especially close to your mom i mean you guys the 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 way you talked to each other there was no um condescension uh like parents can sometimes talk to their children i i don't hear many relationships between parents and kids like i heard in the in the episode with you and your mom but we'll get to that later okay you keep keep talking about that that episode well you know that with that episode in particular uh i had the podcast i did with my mom i listened to it one time since i recorded it with her because it was so unbearable for me to listen to her because i miss her so much and so the 
I played it for my wife, my wife before we got married because I wanted her to meet my mom and that was the best way I knew for her to know who my mom was and I just, you know, I just, I can't listen to it and not cry. And so suddenly I'm at Titmouse, this wonderful animation studio at the very end of making this show, realizing that I'm going to have to be in the dailies room with animators watching this over and over again and and I'm going to cry and they're going to have to in, in any kind of creative process you know you have to make like tough decisions and I've realized that if I were to spend any time at all in working in that ep- with that episode like I had the other episodes that it would create a distraction I didn't want people in a professional environment to have to deal with some sniffling, crying 46 year old sitting in the back of the room as he misses his mom. So I, I, you know, and by then I'd work with Pendleton. We'd been working so much together. I just trust, trusted him and had really recognized his talent and his um, ability to, and his understanding of, of the show and me. And so I, I I stepped out of the way of that one. That and must have been a relief. Yeah, it was an it was a relief. It was excruciating because also I'm thinking what if something goes wrong? What if this episode sucks? And now my mom's voice is attached to something that didn't work. So there was a little bit of fear there, but then when I finally saw it and saw what Pendleton had done he'd incorporated some ideas i told him about how i thought about death and he would call me every once in a while he's got this wonderful soft voice and he would say duncan what are what are some of the things your mom really loved and so like you see you're wearing a blanket with hmm. these symbols on it that represented those things that i told him and he was just he really like just masterfully handled something that for me was really difficult and then it really helped help me heal a lot that's not surprising uh also uh, we should mention that that it was recorded i believe when your mom was terminally ill and knew that she was terminally ill and you knew that she was terminally ill which certainly adds another whole layer of vulnerability and profundity that might be the first time i've ever used the word profundity you'd use it well thank you i appreciate that um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great episode. Let's, let's Thank back you. way, uh, in the name of your podcast is the drunk, uh, drunken, <laughs> drunk, drunken Trussell family hour. And you've got like what, 400 episodes of that. Yeah. I don't even know anymore. I don't, I don't, I, I went from, you know, really being intent on that, the, the quantification of the thing. And now I just try not to think about it anymore. I just make it. And now you just assign mathematical symbols for each episode. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. Like triangle square or, you know, use some kind of alchemical symbols. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Do you think mathematicians use that to make us feel stupid? when they do the stuff on the blackboard, it seems a little uh, overdone, doesn't it? Well, I think that there's a, uh, a benefit to this. An interesting thing, you know, I was just getting in, I was just looking at, cause Bitcoin is at $20,000 of Bitcoin and it's all over the news. So I decided, you know, let's, I'm going to look, I'm going to yet again, try to understand Bitcoin. 
And so I'm reading about it. My brain is breaking trying to understand what a Bitcoin mining machine is and the archaic language that is just... Uh, uh, sprung up around this form of currency. Uh, and I realize it's that very archaic language that is creating this interesting boundary between so many people in the thing. It's like a protective membrane. And I like with math too, I think there's when you really start looking at those symbols and then study their history and re realize it's literally like from magic, from alchemy, from like, crazy people a long time ago it becomes so wild yeah it, it kind of like legalese or uh, you know i think one of the first institutions to do it is uh, is religion to you know kind of impress people with all the pomp and circumstance and they wouldn't let them read uh the bible and, I know. You know, until Gutenberg printed it. And then all of a sudden, oh, my God, then now we can't control the knowledge. People might interpret it differently. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. You and, and even the, the 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 Gutenberg Bible or uh, any any most Bibles don't even they just left stuff out anyway. So and also, of course, when you like go and sort of examine uh, the Greek for example, and realize what it's actually saying versus what the translation is saying, you realize that even the act of translating f has already reduced it to something that's that seems so uh, confusing. And, and you realize a lot of that confusion is the wrong confusion because when I've tried to like read the actual Greek, that's like some, that's a holy form of it confusion when you read when you realize every word in any of these verses is a fractal that has all contained within it its own kind of gospel you know it, it's impossible and it, it's amazing to think that uh it exists at all but and it's also makes sense to me that people who wanted to have control would keep it from other people classic move like when you think of the power that translators have in international negotiations you know at the un you think about the yeah. the weight of choosing which words you're going to tell your leader this person was using god i know the translators rule the world man they that's the, that's the truth of it you know the dumbing down people the world leader translators the clerics and priests Anybody who has decided to take on the role of interpreting the universe for other people is definitely has a lot of extra power. So uh, it must feel good being somebody who has the autonomy that you do, not only in your podcast, but also in the, the Netflix show that you do literally create your own universe and mm -hmm. in, in doing it. What, is, what does that feel like, both the positive and the negative? Oh, uh, well, you know, I think the, I think the positive is the negative kind of, it's wrapped up in itself in the sense that, uh, having an, uh, this is my job and being able to, uh, experience all the freedom that goes along with it. Like, for example, I was able to, uh, leave LA. You know, I and, and moved to North Carolina because my job is mobile and the 
we're all realizing now that we the podcast can be done successfully via Zoom. Some of the superstition that was wrapped up in in-person interviews seems to have been dispelled. I'm not saying that Zoom can ever equate to being in a room with a person and the formality of that and how nice it is to share a space with somebody, but it certainly didn't have the impact that I thought it would have uh, going from live interviews to Zoom. So that creates this ability for me to live anywhere that I would want to or that my wife would want to wherever we want to go we can go because I can my job is mobile but uh, also uh, there's something to be said for grounding you know and my my tendency is uh, I'm a I can get really too up in space and so having this job certainly for someone who can just drift away into space <laughs> It's like it's a perfect job for that, but I, you could end up just completely flying off into the ether somehow, you know, and and start like it's. Sometimes I think, is this a this is must be a dream? I don't understand how I get to have this as my job. I don't understand how this is even working. This doesn't make sense based on what, what the way I learned about the world when I was in high school. And so sometimes I can I can get a little too cosmic. And which is why I love having a family, because you, you can't you have to, that's my earth and my ground and my that connects me to the world and uh, forces a kind of uh, discipline in my life now that I'm beginning to appreciate more and more that I don't think was there in earlier days when I was just podcasting and would be like, you know what, I'm not going to release an episode this week. Maybe I'll do it next week. I'm just going to play God of War. You know, and, 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 but now it's, it's like, I really do have to support a family and, and that means the world to me. It's like a real honor. And so that helps ground me in the earth. So I think the positive is, uh, it produces the ability for me to go flying off into space. <laughs> the negative is that it produces the possibility for me to go flying off into space. Depends on, uh, where my balance is at on any given day. You know what I mean? Like sometimes we're all very ground in the earth, too much in the earth, bean counting, thinking about your money, worrying about your taxes, wondering about all the crazy deep shit that goes into living in a modern society, paperwork, bank stuff, passwords, pin numbers, all that stuff, you know, and then you get too ground into that and you just become, for me, I become like a, a calloused, crusty, boring, rigid thing. But then if I do the thing that I think a lot of people do, which is like, fuck the world, man. You know what I mean? This is a dream. Life is a dream, man. <laughs> then you know what I mean? Then the next thing you know, you, you're, you, you can, ex you ex for me, I, if I follow that too far, then I become just this kind of depressed hedonist. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like then, I, I do. It's it's kind of the pendulum between being the adult and being the kid, which to me is always the battle, the battle between work and play, the battle between optimism and cynicism. Yeah. You know, it's 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 all such a a tightrope and to be and again, even if you want to go meta within that is spending too much time navel gazing, wonder, wondering which side of the pendulum am I on and needing yeah. to get out of yourself and and go see how somebody else is doing. Yeah, ex exactly. That's right. And, and that that I think the art of, of podcasting, it, part of the art of podcasting is 
getting yourself out of the picture as much as you can and not getting caught up in the because at one point I started thinking like oh I always have to do some confessional thing you know what I mean I and then all of a sudden you're like digging for confessions you've told them everything the time you got jerked off at a massage parlor all the drugs you've ever done your hey whatever it is now what is there I don't I've given you everything I've got I've got to come up with a new confession. And so you end up getting lost, and that's something that can happen. And then eventually, for me, you just come around to realizing, oh, we'll just be in the moment together. And then whatever emerges, emerges for better or for worse. Right. And, you know, so to me, there's that kind of uh, balance, that there's a real tightrope you can walk as a podcaster. But I think people are pretty forgiving in this particular business when you fall off that tightrope. Yeah, I, th I think people love the imperfection for better or for worse of podcasting because it's like what whatever package vulnerability and authenticity comes in, you know, they're they're willing to forgive the the wrinkles and the coffee stains on it as long as it doesn't sound like morning radio. Yeah, as long as you're exactly well, morning radio, you know, morning radio, you know, all of the. To me, this was the uh, one of the things that we up until the. Uh, current uh, trends in social media, podcasting. I think people were getting so confused by TV. That's what I like about your podcast in particular is that, um, you know, if you believe the TV, that's how people are. You know, when you're watching even the, even the more edgy sitcoms, you have this continuity of self you have people who are fashionably bad you know what i mean like mm -hmm. people who are they're bad but they're bad in a way society can accept them right. it's bad you know what i mean no one's really bad no one's yep. really like really fucked up and uh and so in that people start getting this insane idea that that there's normal out there and 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 then and you look at your own life and you're like depending on what phase you're in you're in your life you know you look around like there were times when i was just scat like the floor is just covered with like mcdonald's wrappers and old cigarette butts and roaches and roaches both kinds and just a stink in the house you know what i mean you're like god i i must be the worst thing ever but then when you start hearing people who are very honest about their own lives and they're not putting on that damn thing that TV forces people to do. I think it's a really refreshing thing to understand that the world is filled with folks who are going through so many terrible, hard, difficult things. That's what I like about your podcast because it Thanks. it's a, it's a antidote, you know. And I think that with podcasting in general, when we all started realizing that we're all in our own ways going through shit, yeah, it's it really created a, a, the kind of relief. That yeah. folks need if you're gonna if you're gonna start working with with it because it just doesn't help if you think you're a raving lunatic or the only raving lunatic or one of a few. There is a definitely a, a relief in that. So one of the things that, that I've always kind of scratched my head about with with you is you you have this close relationship or had a close relationship with with your mom it seems like you were probably raised in a nurturing environment where she saw you she heard you she mirrored you 
you got a sense of self and yet you become a stand-up comedian, which is usually the emblem of somebody who missed out on something in childhood or experienced wow. trauma. Or- yeah. yeah. Well, the, uh, I think the, if you, that one of the accidental deceptions of that particular episode of the midnight gospel is that you, you know, you meet my mother when she's uh, dying. And so when you meet a dying person, you know, depending on what they're dying from, you will encounter a lot of what they really are. And that is what my mom really is and was. That being said, my mom was a a very complicated person who, uh, when we, when I was, um, growing up, uh, I remember when I was, uh, growing up, I would tell my friends, you know, I can't remember my childhood. And my friends, I remember someone being like, you know, that's a really bad sign, man. Horrible sign. You know, that's real bad. Because I had full amnesia. I couldn't remember. I still can barely remember the first uh, 11 years of my life. I have a few flickering memories. But what happened is my mom married my dad, who had just come back from two tours of duty in Vietnam, who had um, PTSD and was tre- was treating it with alcohol which a lot of vets do and um and and because of that we ended up going uh i i added up the number of addresses i've lived at in my life and it's 16 17 just wow. you're always moving always moving i would tell people how many places i live and they're like were you in the military it's like well kind of <laughs> post military and the and so we moved all the time, always packing, always moving until finally, I think in some <clears throat> attempt to save the marriage, my mom started getting into Episcopalianism, which is really beautiful, a beautiful form of Christianity, I think, uh, and ended up, as I've tried to piece all this together, this is what I think happened. Because I, I remember as a kid, she got into this like Episcopalian, I don't want to call it a cult or something called De Caloris. And uh, I remember she's going to these like church retreats and stuff. And I and also I remember when I was older, after my mom had gotten divorced, I found this cassette tape. And I remember playing it. And it was this guy. And he's singing music to me and my brother this pastor and anyway as it turns out my mom had an affair with him my dad walked in on them humping on the couch and uh, according to legend he went back to his truck to get a shotgun and tried to kill my mom and this priest pastor whatever he was and he was gonna kill himself but the shotgun jammed and it just didn't work like showing the power of god that was a real pastor (laughs) holy shit that's like a divine miracle kept me from being orphans me and my brother from being orphans kept my mom from dying uh so that 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 was what that was the kind of world that i i came up in and that's you don't you were not present when that happened were you no, we no, we were visiting my aunt in uh Florida. Um we 
we were watching this is when poltergeist and annie came out this is how i i've been able to like map out a timeline that's how i started as i re remember like oh wait we we were we were like singing the annie musical and everybody was saying god what was that stupid saying about pissing everybody said after annie remember you gotta go when you gotta go like all of a sudden everybody was saying that because it's a line in the movie this was before memes but i and so i was able to from that start going working backwards through my childhood and piece together places here and there that i could remember but mostly it's just a it's a garbled scrambled mess of memories I, lo I love the juxtaposition of annie with her little curls and a failed shotgun murder suicide yeah and also that we almost became orphans like we were watching annie theoretically maybe on the day that we were about to be orphans if 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 uh, a miracle hadn't happened that evening so uh this catapulted us to North Carolina, where we were able to have a, a bit more of a normal kind of stable life. Um, but even then my mom remarried and we kept moving around and stuff. And uh, so I think the if you're gathering that I had a harmonious childhood from that episode, you would be wrong. It was- <laughs> 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 Mystery solved. Uh, so, uh, you're somebody that, that seems to have a ton of intellectual hobbies, a lot of them, uh, off the grid, uh, from mainstream society, the occult, uh, spirituality, not, not so much. So, um, psychedelics, mm. uh, what, what would you like to talk about first? Uh, you pick. I'll, I'll talk about any of those for a thousand hours straight. You pick. Well, let's talk about uh, spirituality because it's a, it's a, to me it's a word that has such a, a huge uh, scope of interpretation. You know, there's there's the people who think spirituality is taking their limo to the airport and flying to India and getting a tattoo. Yes, you know. And then there are the people like your uh, late friend Ram Das, who was like, "No, it's all about the action. It's about being of service. It's about living a principled life." Um, it's it's uh, you know I, my my interpretation of of what he was teaching is somewhat of what you just said, but I think actually uh, what what I love about what he's teaching is that where you start where you're at so uh in other words uh the next step is the path you're on a so f now in the bhagavad gita which is a scripture that i really love from india there uh is a description of the people who try to find god and you would expect this description to be like pious people or principled people or honest people but in, in these descriptions i think they do mention intelligent people but also they mention the seeker after gold and so in this particular form of yoga uh called bhakti yoga which i think you could say ramdas practiced or kind of bhakti yoga related to hanuman or his guru neem Kroli baba there is this beautiful idea a conceptualization of connecting with the divine wherein regardless of why you want to connect 
and who you are when you try to make the connection, just the very act of reaching out will begin to transform you. Now you, so, so in these stories in Bhakti Yoga, there are people who are in the mythology, Krishna's nemesis, Krishna's greatest enemy inevitably becomes like a saint because even the act of hating God with all of the ferocity of a mythological demon is a form of devotion. And so this is what I love about the, this conceptualization of spirituality is all are welcome. You're going to get your Indian tattoo and do your blog and, you know, get a few pictures of what seems to be your, you know, deep dive into spirituality when you're just staying at nice hotels, not really doing anything, just trying to make some money. Fine. That's fine. As long as there's a single inkling of something in you that has this feeling that I think there's something more than this and starts following that, you will change for you will begin to change. And um, so this to me is if I was going to ha if I was forced to like talk about a word that gets used too much spirituality, uh, it, it, it would be anything that helps you remember that where you're at right now is just where you need to be. This is it. This is the place. And there's all kinds of things that remind us of that. Very complicated systems of yoga and magic and um, self-help. And then just very simple things like walking outside, as, as, as trite as that might sound, going out into the forest, touching the ground, looking at color, as ridiculous as that sounds, reminding yourself of the that this is where you, you are here. This is your place. This is it. This is where you're at. And, and the dream of where you're supposed to be and the guilt over where you've been produces a kind of temporal crucifix that you're psychologically nailing yourself to because you don't have the apps. You didn't meditate seven <laughs> days this week. And you did. You were going to train for the marathon, but you did. You stopped. And all those things, you know what I mean? The, these yes. this super ego stuff versus like where you're at right now, which is it. This is where we start. You start from where you're at. So this is what I learned from Ram Dass. Uh, 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 which is this profound teaching that you can love yourself where you're at. And this is why Ram Dass would say, I love myself to death. That his method for dissolving the ego, which, you know, you hear ayahuasca people always using these very aggressive terms. I crushed my ego. I destroyed my ego. I shattered my ego. It, 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 poor ego. Poor ego. Your ego did all this work. It, it, it was trying to protect you. You needed that ego. It helped you through all these different phases of your life. And now you're going to decimate and crush it. That's, to me... Um, how are we going to there's Pima Chodron uh, in her book The Wisdom No Escape talks about how if the idea of meditation is to become a better person then meditation becomes an aggression to the self that you are right now and 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 it, it, so what I learned from Ram Dass is something about just allowing me to be where I'm at now to love it and to love the bad stuff 
that isn't fashionably bad, to love the stuff that really needs work, to love the stuff that really, really uh, could decimate my life doesn't mean spiritual bypass. In other words, I continue some action that causes harm in the world. But also, um, it, it means that in the process of change, I'm changing out of love, not out of fear. Not out of anger, and that—that's what—that's uh, to me. That's that's what that's what I I gathered from Ram Dass. But he was very principled, you know. He he did have he was principled. I really needed to hear that. That mm. that was such a great reminder to make friends with reality and just dance. You know, just dance. Yeah. Just not try to force the dance. See what. You know, you're kind of your your partner's doing. Stay tuned into them instead of rolling in there going, you know, we're going to do this and I'm going to impress everybody and then I'll be loved and I won't die alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just the the mind is so uh, the some aspects of the mind can be so nightmarish. You know, we we all have it. It's it's the and if you look at some of the ways of thinking about where thoughts come from which for me is like a, a just a fun exercise in general like we know the thoughts come but where are they coming from like what's the it's not like we're sitting there thinking what we're gonna think because that would create some horrible feedback loop or it's not like the and yet the mind just keeps putting out all these various thoughts and for a lot of people they're the thoughts that they are tuning into are quite negative and generally quite negative about themselves. People don't like me. I, I fucked up. I don't deserve what I have. Maybe I should kill myself. I wonder if I'll always be this fat. What's wrong with me? Why can't I stop eating chips at midnight? Why did I eat 17 donuts or why am I in, but the whole time all those like main thoughts are going through our minds there's all these other thoughts too mundane boring thoughts you know just stupid you know what I'm saying like ridiculous things like I need to buy more pens does the car have gas in it you know what I mean like that kind of stuff and, and yet our minds tune into the danger thoughts and, and the thoughts regarding our own self as being a danger it's like an autoimmune disorder springs up because we're choosing to pay attention to one thought over the other one. You know, we listened to the we listen to the thought that's like, God, you talk too much, but we're not gonna listen to the thought that's like I wonder what Mickey Mouse's feet look like. Do they ever see you ever see Mickey Mouse's feet? What if they're claws? What if they're clawed like a bird? You know, because that's ridiculous. What's the point? So all I'm saying is you you get this scatter of thoughts you tune into the negative a lot of people do and then you start living a life according to that and the whole, and that way and then for me that's the around the corner life which i don't want to live that you know what i mean we're around the corner i'm going to be all right uh, as soon as i get this in order i'll eventually i will somewhere be the thing and then i'm going to relax right right if you do that you're never never ever going to find a, a, a yes it, you won't there is no relax in that in that way of thinking 
a, a book that was really helpful for me that I always recommend is A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. That that book is, to me, such a great guide for identifying the, the mean voice in our head. I don't know. Are you a fan of his at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's wonderful. I mean, he's so simple. And yeah, he's wonderful. I think he, he, he probably got enlightened and, um, you know, which is just part of the thing it's he was he became you know he's one of the good translators you know like somebody who out of compassion figured out a way to to translate what had happened to him so that other people could also have some peace yeah you know yeah i i, I like him my i i have a meditation teacher named david nick turn who was a student of uh, a very controversial teacher called Chogyam Chumpa Rinpoche. And uh, so I, I work, I, I guess you could say even, you know, Buddhism, it's weird because a lot of times people just say Buddhism isn't like, the like a Buddhist teacher, Jack Cornfield once told me, we don't want you to be a Buddhist. We want you to be a Buddha. And it's a big difference in a different way of thinking of it. But the particular lineage I'm studying, um, via my teacher uh one of the names for it is the mishap lineage and i really like it it's because you know buddhism encapsulates everything like you want to you want strict disciplined like hardcore austerity here's zen buddhism you want uh psychedelic wild uh deity filled buddhism here's what people call Tibetan Buddhism or Vajrayana, Tantric Buddhism, you know, and they have Buddhisms all in between. Uh, the Medicine Buddha will heal you or um, Mahayana Buddhism or Pure Land Buddhism. And so what I love about it is it's Buddhism to me is just a system uh, wherein there's a possibility for uh, not suffering anymore. It's not going to numb you down, but the suffering thing, it it helps with you're that. not fighting the suffering and adding to it is that a fair well, description i i you know well, first of all i can only, i don't know i'll speak for for my i don't know i guess i feel like saying that just i don't know but i could if i were to try to describe it mm -hmm. it would be along the lines of and it sounds crazy. Everyone in Buddhism, people really like get focused on the first two noble truths. Life is suffering. The cause of suffering is attachment. And because that's what we're experts in is suffering. Like I'm, mm -hmm. a, I'm a suffering expert and I'm an attachment expert. I'll get attached to anything and I know about suffering. But the next two truths in Buddhism, which are essentially the way to in suffering nobody people are less focused on that because if because what the fuck would that be like what would i be like should i no longer suffer is that even real is that some kind of bullshit version of heaven or something like that right. you know and but it, buddha apparently said i teach two things suffering and the end of suffering and the way my teacher puts it is look at like the look at the dalai lama look at the Tibetan Rinpoches, do they look sad to you? They're always just happy. They have this just simple, basic happiness 
associated with the way that they approach the world. And so I think that speaks to the possibility that it isn't just a um, pipe dream that we our suffering could actually stop in this life. So is, in your mind, the act of seeking in there somewhere in the gap between suffering and not suffering? What, what helps bridge the gap between suffering and the end of suffering? Oh, I know that's a huge ass question, but I love it. And you know, what was I the other day I was telling my wife about the, I feel like this is a fair warning before I answer that question. The other day, I was telling my wife about how many beds are in emergency rooms because we're talking about COVID. I'm like, there's six beds in emergency rooms. She goes, Duncan, how do you know how many beds there are in emergency rooms? And I thought about it and I realized I've been in like two emergency rooms, but somehow I was confidently belting out like I was the ran a hospital. How many beds are in emergency rooms? So that's who I am. So in, in other words, I, I'll just speak from my own experience regarding the question. Uh, so the, it seems like suffering is really wrapped up in identity, wrapped up in the self. And so you meet someone who wants to kill themselves, let's say, or who says, I hate myself, which is a, I think it's going out of fashion, but at a time there was almost like a something cool about a general disdain for one's own identity. And from that disdain for your own identity, you'll have a natural disdain for the world, of course, because there's no difference between the two. So those kinds of people, a person who hates themselves generally has a sense of paranoia about them. People don't like me. Well, but only because they, you, they hate themselves. And if you, the fundamental thing you're coming into contact with in the uh, universe has a dislike for yourself, then naturally you're going to assume every single other person must not like you because you know yourself theoretically better than anybody, right? So, so this is why in Buddhism, in some forms of Buddhism, Jack Cornfield talks about this. He uh, joined a monastery and he said the uh, first thing they asked monks when they entered the monastery was, where are you in your body? So this was an exercise. You weren't just going to answer it right away. You just start thinking about it. Like, where am I in my body? And this begins, I think, a kind of systematic approach to the analysis of the self. So a person might say, well, I hate myself because I don't like the way I look and I don't like things that I've done and I can't get disciplined enough to do what I want to do. And so you realize that number one, just in describing themselves, they've reduced themselves to like a few infinitesimally small qualities compared to all the other stuff that they are. You know, and so the the way I'm sorry, I'm I'm just going to quote a lot of the teachers because I, I hope. No, that, I love it. So Sharon Salzberg says, you know, a person comes home after work and 
kicks themselves for the one dumb thing they said or did or whatever, you know, whatever it was, and completely forgets all the other great things they did that day. When they opened a door for somebody, maybe, or when they got the thing done that they had been procrastinating, you forget all that, but you just remember the bad stuff. And so within this, uh, you can see how a person begins to conflate their identity with all the things that they've done wrong when that is most certainly not all that you are it you are that there's qualities in every single person that could maybe use some work or a rough around the edges but this constriction of the identity if you look at it as a mandala where you only take one sector of the mandala and say that's me and i hate it Number one, well, maybe it's not wrong that you hate that. Maybe it's not wrong that you hate that you have alcoholic blackouts and, and, and do horrible things and that through a series of bad decisions, you've hurt a lot of people. Maybe it's not necessarily bad to look at that and say, that's not great, but we also need to acknowledge all the other stuff in that mandala so that we and then in there suddenly this buddhist psychology springs forth which is it is possible to simultaneously be many different things at once uh and the description chogyam trumpa rinpoche gives is imagine uh he's so it's such a it's a it's a rather brutal image but imagine a child licking a razor blade that has honey on it. The child is tasting his own blood, but also the sweetness of the honey simultaneously. And so within the human experience, there's so much sweetness, but people imagine that because there's also, they're feeling this vast amount of pain that the sweetness can't possibly exist at the same time, but it does. And so within this sort of expansion of the circumference of the identity, you hear all these, descriptions of it which is take a cube of salt put it in a cup drink that it's going to taste horrible take a cube of salt drop it in an olympic sized pool of the freshest water ever take a sip of that water you won't taste the salt at all so somewhere in the uh not faith-based uh conceptualization of the self, but somewhere within the legitimate exploration of the self, the circumference of the identity begins to expand. And and in that expansion, I can't say for sure that suffering ends, because mine certainly hasn't, but the tightness surrounding the suffering, it, 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 it loosens. And so what formally was maybe almost unbearable becomes bearable and that's great just that alone is great you want to get enlightened please do we could use more enlightened people in the world but also it's nice and this is another thing sharon salzberg said is that she was talking to this kid who practices buddhism and the kid said, mindfulness is what keeps me from punching people in the face. <laughs> it's that. That's great. That's great. If it just keeps us from that, 
wonderful. Glory be to God. You know, and so that's my understanding of it is it's it's a it's a kind of system through which you can begin to understand more of what you are. And in that understanding, the suffering that was coming from a very rational connection to a phantom living in the whatever the construct of your identity was begins to sort of fade away. Just like another way people put it is it's it's turning on the light. You know, a dark room is a scary room. It is a lot to absorb. And uh, I, I love it. I love it. You're, you have uh, expanded my mind in, in so oh. many ways. And I, I came to this interview, um, I think, with a really limited view on spirituality and view of oneself. And while a lot of things that I entered into this conversation believing are still there, I didn't realize until you started talking how limited the scope of my uh, interpretation of what spirituality and, and seeking are. And I'm stoked. Cool, man. Well, I'm glad. But, you know, the observation of the marketplace mentality regarding spirituality is like you'd have to be blind to not see it. And you'd and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with having a generalized sense of skepticism when it comes to a lot of this stuff. You you certainly have to be very um, discerning yeah. with this kind of thing, because, I mean, what is it? What is it? Mark Twain says. Uh, religion started when the first con man met the first fool. <laughs> you know, it's like, come on, what are you selling? Air over here? You know, what's, what is this? And so, and, and ho the horrible thing is people recognizing that there, there really is a threat of power or truth in it. They then, instead of saying, now you go figure it out. They say, I'm going to help you. You need me to figure it out. Right. And that's where it gets fucked up. Oh, yeah. Hierarchy <laughs> is the red flag of the charlatan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why they didn't want that Bible translated, because, I mean, what is Jesus saying? You, you, you don't need anybody else. There doesn't need to be a priest class. This is a, this is a thing for everybody. And it says the same thing in the Bhagavad Gita, which is, they who are attached to the flowery words of the scriptures are like a person who drinks water from a well when it flows everywhere. And these are, you read things like that, and then you see all the various systems around both the Bhagavad Gita and the Bible. You know, I, I, I was talking to my friend who walked into a room in one of these Tibetan monasteries where they were counting the money. He said it was the most fucked up thing he ever saw. These monks with stacks of rupees. You know what I mean? And, and is it bad necessarily to uh, donate money to a church or a temple? I don't think so, because a lot of these places do a lot of good for their communities. Were they playing dice? No, they, no, they were just no. That's yeah, that's hilarious though. I don't know. I mean, all the, the also the, a lot of you know the idea of monasteries being filled with saints is a really confused idea regarding these places or temples or churches in general. But, you know, I'm glad that you feel I helped potentially redefine this thing for you. You know, the best 
one of the things Chokim Trump or Rinpoche says, and people are going to say, you know, it's a little hypocritical that in the midst of talking about exploitation, you're bringing up Chogim Trump, but you should look into him because he's a controversial figure. I understand why. And I don't, um, I'm not trying to uh, get in the way of anybody's trauma or thinking regarding that. I, I feel like we really do have to, at this point, be able to separate the baby from the bathwater these days, you know, and grab a thread of something if you can. And there's a lot of baby when it comes to Chogim Trumpa, but I think it's safe to say there's probably a little bit of bathwater too. And so the, but, but, uh, he, when he talks about how you'll know when you're in, in the presence of it, real spirit, re, the real deal is it's like fresh baked bread. It's like fresh baked bread. That's the feeling you should have. Not some stale, boring, un, unfulfilling bullshit, but it should, you know that thing when you pull bread out of the oven, that smell, mm -hmm. and it's so nice, and it's like love. It's love when you're with your face. It's that. It's That's primal. what it, Yes, that, yeah. And, and it's in the now. This is not a thing about someone who lived in BC. This is something that's, that's the way my teacher puts it is we do this in real time. It's, it happens now. And so, uh, I think that's one way you can discern, uh, what's going on. If you find yourself in something that feels very stale and all, uh, and also blasphemy. If you get this sense, you can blaspheme around someone. Watch out. You know, with the Ramdas people, that, when I first met them, and was far more cynical when it came to spirituality and far more um, negative about this stuff. I would intentionally try to offend them. I would try to say things that I found to be the, like, you know, like, they all have this guru, Neem Kroli Baba, this um, being that Ramdas encountered in India. And I would say things. Well, now when I look back, I, I feel... I, I'm the one being like, that was not, why'd you do that? But the, I think I was just trying to protect myself because I knew if they were like, never say that, or don't, that you can't do that, that that would not be my scene, you know? And, and so I would say things like, weren't you guys just on a bunch of acid? Like you're just on a bunch of acid. And isn't this kind of just like, you just saw somebody when you're on a bunch of acid, how can you necessarily believe that how could you even know it's true and i remember saying that to my one of one of my teachers ragu and he just laughed he's like i don't know you're right could be <laughs> any minute i don't know and so it that to me that's it it wasn't like don't ever ask that again or how could you question these miracles it's just like yeah I don't, look i don't know don't know why it works don't know how it works don't know what it is don't know um well, what a what a good segue into psychedelics. Um, if you can talk about uh, your experience with psychedelics, especially as it pertains to, uh, I don't know if you have experienced these or not, but anxiety, depression, yeah. existential dread, uh, okay. you know, any of the above. So when I was in um, college. I began to have a suicide fantasy it, and it was bad and it wasn't like, you know, I always have suicidal ideations. Bill Burr's got a great joke on them. I don't think it, these things are necessarily like a, 
uh, a warning flag. The mind produces all kinds of stuff, and the in humans are naturally like to avoid pain. So human existence is quite painful. So from time to time, your mind might suggest, "Why don't we just end? It? Let's just end it. This hurts." But that that that's different than when when you when you're you know not feeling anymore and you haven't felt for a long time and you can't get out of bed and you are depressed and so i was depressed and in retrospect i think i was depressed for a long time i think my what i came out of left me incredibly numbed down and depressed i i still think i'm i'm getting past it now just now you know i don't, I don't know if i'll ever fully I don't know if I'll ever fully get out of it, but the, um, at least in this life, but the, so I was, I, you know, I had a plan, I started cu cooking up a plan. Like I knew a place in the woods I might go. I was thinking I would cut my wrists and just bleed out in the woods. And so then, thank God, I still had that little place of lucidity that sadly some people lose or they, and that's when they do it but i told my mom like i i don't know what's wrong with me and then i went to a psychologist and the psychologist was like you are fucking depressed like you have a really bad bad endogenous depression and um it's bad bad and so um they prescribed zoloft to me and so i, I got on antidepressants and it was interesting because it kind of worked in this weird way. It was working like there was some clarity again and something. But um, then I then I, I I was working at a summer camp at the time, and I ended up going on like a ten day hike into the woods with all these kids. And you know, again, I as someone who suffers from depression from time to time, I really feel all y'all out there who hate the quick depression fix story and I'm not suggesting that there is a quick fix for this thing necessarily but also you need to report your experience which is something about being out in the forest not seeing my own reflection being in nature it li it lifted and you know when a depression lifts do you get depressed you get depressed you know when a oh, yeah. oh yeah you know when it lifts in the same way you know when um you don't have a cold anymore it it, it lifts but the problem with it is, at least my experience with it, is when it comes, you don't know when it's going to lift or if it will lift. And one of the things it tells you is it might never, this might be the one that never ends. And so that's, and so people who have depression, like me, we always have a little piece of us that's worried. Why didn't I make my bed today? Why am I sleeping late? Why? Am I feeling, am I getting numb again? Is, I, is, is it coming? Also in winter for, for a lot of us, you know, you just have to be very, I'm very attuned to it. The, the attunement doesn't make it stop necessarily. But anyway, regarding the psychedelic question, I had entered into a, another a depressive episode, not like the one that happened to me the first time. I've never had anything like that, that, thank God. So did you stop taking the Zoloft? I stopped taking the Zoloft. Yeah, I stopped taking the Zoloft, and I haven't taken antidepressants uh, since then, but I'm not opposed to it. Like, I do have a agreement with myself that if I ever 
uh, get back to like being, you know, the, the thing where you're laying in bed and you're like, I'll just piss the bed. You, you can't get up. You're just thinking about pissing yourself. You're not taking showers. You're, you can't think your mind's all, you can't think. And, and, and maybe it's like not the safest thing to have a plan because the plan assumes you're thinking, but if it ever happened again, I would just go to a psychiatrist and get some kind of medication medication for it because i'm not fucking with that again i got a kid you know i don't i can't be in i can't i have to live and but so um i just i got lucky because um i know someone who uh is a psychiatrist who uh, has a ketamine clinic and i was confiding in him that uh i'll, I'll start tearing up just because it was so scary because i just i couldn't bear the idea that I was going to like go, I just didn't want it. I, I, I was so scared. How long I, ago was this? This was, this must have been five years ago, okay. five years ago. Um, and I was confiding in him that I was uh, worried that I was getting depressed again. I think I was asking him if there were antidepressants that he thought were better than others. And he said, well, look, why don't we try intermuscular ketamine to and just see what happens it works there's a statistic i think it's 60 or 70 percent of the time it, it can help and so uh i tried it in a clinical setting and um i i didn't know it was so psychic i didn't know that it, it was the one of the most psychedelic medicine oh, it's in it's intense you have I, taken I did. Yeah, I did uh, clinical IV drips. Holy shit. It is like... You are tripping. Yeah, you're tripping. It's it's like five hits of acid, DMT combined, but you're not there. But yeah, it, and, and um, it was wild because, you know, I've had testicular cancer and I... Um, the first thing that happened is I'm having these weird ketamine visions as I was just sitting back at the doctor's office and the doctor who told me I had cancer, it was like he was there and he was, it was just reliving that trauma of learning you have cancer. And then this, like, I started on the ketamine, I, I started seeing like, cancer all over my body growing through my body grow going into my like and and um i realized i was just terrified of death i just didn't want to die and i um This, you know, whatever that psychedelic voice is or whatever that is, that thing, it's not quite a voice. Is it our deepest selves? Is it something? I don't know what it is, but it said to me, your love, your, your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. And it was this like, oh, wow, I'm fucking getting depressed because I, I'm, I don't want this. I love it here. I don't want it to go. I don't want it to end. I love it. I love this place. Heartbroken over the reality of impermanence, I guess, at that time. And my friend Cole told me after the fact that regardless of psychedelic 
stuff happening during the treatment. It's the same statistic. You can be put under and like given a benzo so you don't experience anything. You can like go on the full roller coaster ride. Some people might not even have that, but it's still the same statistic, which points to this not being an epiphanous thing that heals you, that it's causing a physiological change in your brain chemistry. Um, but he said, if there's a light show, that's a boner. <laughs> and, and so for me, there was this sort of philosophical uh, realization that I hadn't gotten over, like having be it being a cancer survivor, but also the realization that I was like freaked out about dying. And, um, and then I got back to at the time I was visiting LA, I got back to my hotel room and I, I'm feeling good. And I'm thinking, no way, no fucking way. I'm that th it was lifting, like, just like it always did, except this was from a medicine. Shocking. The next day felt better. And then, you know, I, I got into the right minds space and made a lot of life decisions and ended up moving to LA. But yeah, that was, that's my most therapeutic experience with a psychedelic. And have you had to take uh, recurring doses of it? Have you stayed on it as a, a thing that you occasionally go back for tune-ups? Yeah. That's the, that's the sad part of the story is that because I, I have a very addictive personality and so then I, I started just blowing rails of ketamine all the time. Got completely fucking habituated to it. It's very addictive. It's a uh, addictive in the most ridiculous... Thank God it's just uh, habit forming. It's not physically addictive, but nonetheless, it's very addictive. And it's physiologically not very good for you. So I kept going back. I kept trying to go back to that place Uh and it's it for me. It's it, at the time. It, you know how it is with drugs. They work for you, and then that you work for them. It was like a nice creativity drug. It was giving me a lot of epiphanies and realizations that made it into the midnight gospel uh, visions that I had on it. But then I just realized, oh man, I, you know, I'm a I'm addicted. My wife's like, you're addicted. You can't do this. You're addicted. I'm like I'm gonna keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, so I tried to do it for as long as I, I could. And then finally, I just, I think, I, w I think the end for me was it took me something like six hours to record a 30 second commercial for my podcast. Oh my you know what I mean? Like I was like, uh, and then, and then thank God, whatever the part of my brain is that likes having a successful business was like, it's, this is over. This is done. You can't do it's, you, this isn't working. It's not, there's no creativity coming out of you anymore. There's no visions. There's no realizations other than you have managed to zombify yourself. And this is a complete waste of time. And so then I just flushed it down the toilet and I haven't done it since. And I got lucky, you know, I didn't, I've always gotten lucky in that way in the sense that it didn't destroy, I didn't like jump the shark.
So right. <laughs> uh, what was your psychiatrist saying during this time? Were you being honest with him that you were? Hell using- no. <laughs> I wasn't telling him. That. I didn't want him to feel guilty. You know, I don't, I, I think I may have hinted at it or something, but, and yeah, no, I was doing, you know, when you become, when you get addicted, you turn into a rat. You hide, like, you know how rats, like, you hide stuff and forget stuff and you're all in the shadows. And you're like, ah, you know, so no, I, I, I didn't. And, um, but, uh, you know, you, you just, I, I feel very, my, it might not sound like it, but I'm a very traditional parent. And I just, I just don't feel like I can, having come from a, uh, already from a pretty turbulent childhood where substance abuse was a, a big issue, I just can't, my soul can't really tolerate being that to my son, you know? So I, I, yeah, that, that there's, you know, Victor Frankl, in man's search for meaning apparently he would ask his he's a he's a therapist and he would ask his uh clients why don't you kill yourself what keeps you from killing yourself and whatever they would say that was their meaning in life you know and when that meaning is out of the picture things can get really weird but i feel lucky i have meaning in my life right now you know something that's more important than me or feeling good or talking to entities in other realms. I've got an entity in this realm, you know, a little beautiful elf entity that is, that's all I need. You know, I, I get, I'll talk to the aliens when I die. So where is the depression nowadays and uh, what are the tools you use to deal with it or do you just ride it out? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, right now, I like, I can't tell. I, I feel pretty good. Uh, the, the tool, for me, the tools are tell my family, tell my wife, immediately confess the depression. I don't know what the fuck it is about depression. That, to make matters worse, you feel embarrassed that you're depressed. You know what I mean? Like, how dare it add that to its list of awful things it does to us? Do you think we're afraid that people are going to go, no, you're just lazy? (laughs) I am. I deserve it, too. I've done that to my friends. I've done it. I've thought about it and been like, oh, they're lazy. They're lazy. You can't blame them. That's the other thing is like you can't blame them when they're like, oh, you're being lazy. Taking naps all the time. You're lazy. That my dad would say, you're lazy. It's like I'm fucking depressed sleeping all the time to get out of this childhood uh but yeah so my tool the tools to deal with it are one if it's coming say i'm getting depressed two the agreement i mentioned earlier which is if it becomes unmanageable go to a doc look at it as just like breaking your leg or like you know when you get that cut that you know you've got to get stitched up no different don't imagine that you're not dealing with an infected thing currently and then exercise uh it's i'm not going to say anything that's particularly mind-blowing here but am i drinking ever am i drinking too much how many beers have i had this week am i using some is something happening here that i'm not 
balanced? Where's the imbalance? What's going on? Am I sleeping enough? The, the simple things like that, like these are the things that can be adjusted. You know, like it, the side effects of not having a healthy tool for it. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's it. Sometimes it's the depression giving you insomnia. Sometimes you're on your phone. Do you know what I mean? You're going to bed and you're looking at Reddit conspiracy and <laughs> for, for four hours straight and then wondering why you feel bad in the morning, you know? Sometimes it's not a mystery. And so I, so, and uh, that's one of the things I've, I've learned from my friend when he like talks about these things. It's just very simple. Are you seeing people? When was the last time you went outside? Have you been hanging out with friends at all? And like all of these things are, uh, have a kind of map in them, don't they? It's like the depression doesn't want you to be social. The depression doesn't want you to exercise. The depression doesn't want you to tell people you feel bad. And so in the interim between making the decision about whether you need to go to a psychiatrist or not, you can start doing things, actions that at the very least will let you know how far the things progressed. And um, if you can't do the actions, well, it's, called, it's time to call the doctor. That, that means it's gotten to the point where you're paralyzed, you know? And that's a real thing and you have to be very honest about it. Uh, if you can't get yourself to take a walk, walk the dog. If you're eat, if you can't get yourself to eat good food, you know, you know what I'm saying. Like these are things yeah. that just simple shifts can uh, begin uh, the possibility of remission. For me, this has been my personal experience with it. Other people have different types of depression and more serious forms of depression, dep manic depression, for example, things like that. And it's, it doesn't work like that. I think I just got lucky because it seems that thus far I have a manageable form of depression. Well, buddy, thank you so much for sharing all that and um, talking about the, the stuff you went through in childhood and uh, especially your thoughts on uh, spirituality and, and Buddhism give me a lot to uh, a lot to think about, and uh, uh, keep keep kicking ass with your your podcast. And is there going to be a second season of uh, Midnight Gospel? You know they haven't canceled it, but you're waiting. Not, yeah, just waiting to hear. I, I I don't know. I don't know. It's a big mystery. I have let go of it. No, not to say that it isn't going to happen or, or uh, is going to happen, but, you know, I've had to be uh, like really try to uh, work with the tools that I've been given through Ram Dass and the teachers to sort of just, you know, let it be what it is. And also to realize, like, we got to make it. They let us make that crazy show. I, that's to me is the, the great miracle of the whole thing is we made a cool show. We did it. And so I'm, I'm, I hang out there and I love podcasting. You know, I don't know about you, but I just love this job. I mean, I know you love the job, but I don't know where your mind goes when it comes to, we'll talk about that on my podcast. I don't know where your mind goes when it comes to expansion, you know, but I just love this job. And so I'm pretty happy as a pod, as a podcaster. It, it feels good to me and a comedian. I, I like that. And if I, they let me get into the laboratory and make cool stuff, I'll go in there. But, you know, I, I, I don't, 
I'm not banging down the door necessarily because I don't you feel like you, this is your your laboratory. This is I it. I do. Um, yeah, I I do. Um, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Oh yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a real honor to be on your show. Thank you. Cool. Thank yeah, you. That's dude, a good that, that was great. That was great. Yeah, we covered a lot of territory that uh, I hadn't covered yet in the in the podcast, or at least hadn't gone as in depth into. So, uh, yeah, that was that was fun. Thanks, friend. I really enjoyed it. You're a great. I'm glad we finally made that happen. Go. Uh, Go check out his stuff. This is from the love survey filled out by I Just Can't. And they write, I love telling inanimate objects to go fuck themselves. I've worked hard to express myself to my fellow humans in kind, gentle, loving ways. Sometimes, though, I just got to take it out on something. I just caught myself telling a painting to go to hell because it was crooked. I felt so much better afterward. P.S. The painting is still crooked. This is a shame and secret survey. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself Phil. He is—he only filled out part of the survey. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s, uh, was raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, never been sexually abused, never been physically abused. Uh, darkest thoughts, I don't want to be alive. Darkest secrets. When I was a kid, maybe around 13, I once masturbated in the car next to my mom and we even made eye contact, but it didn't bother me. She didn't know I was masturbating. I wasn't turned on by her. I was young and just beginning to masturbate, so it was just something I liked to do. Didn't become a sexual thing for me until later. Still, it's totally embarrassing. I watch bizarre porn sometimes, and in parentheses, shemale, even though I am not gay, water sports, even scat. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, the, the, the term shemale, and I didn't realize this when I first started doing the podcast, is very derogatory uh, towards the, the trans population. Um, I would use the word trans woman, and, um, and gay has nothing to do with being attracted to uh, trans women. Uh, in fact, I believe the majority of men that are attracted to trans women are uh, straight. I could be wrong. Anyway, thank you for for sharing that. Um, he also writes, I had an embarrassingly normal and healthy upbringing. My parents were extremely loving and supportive. I got along well with my sister. Never any kind of abuse or serious bullying outside of the home either. What sexual fantasies are most powerful to you? I have always had a fetish for Asian women. I think the reason is that my best friend growing up uh, from age 6 to around 12 was Korean and his house was a stimulus overload. Huge house, newest video games, and his mom would always serve us the best food. I think my wires got crossed somehow and all the excitement with the house got connected with his mom. Just a theory I have. Can't think of any other reason I would be attracted almost exclusively to Asian women from the time I was young. Uh, and another thing I, that I just want to comment on is there is absolutely nothing wrong with being attracted to a certain type of person or a certain ethnicity. Um, you, you use the word uh, fetish. And the 
as long as the other person doesn't experience you treating them like a fetish, treating them like an object, because that can, to them, that can feel very kind of minimizing and, and dehumanizing. Um, but thank you for sharing uh, all of that stuff. I, per- I appreciate it. Is that how you pronounce it? This is from the love survey filled out by Lena. I live in the Pacific Northwest and I love the rain. I haven't met many people who love the rain as much as I do. One thing I love to do is to go for a walk after a fresh rainfall or when it's early and dewy in the morning, touch my nose to the tip of a leaf and feel the water droplet run down my face. Another thing I love is how my dog is so excited to be alive first thing in the morning when I'm still trying to drag myself out of bed. He is nine years old, but is so joyous in the morning that it reminds me to feel the same joy in the present moment. Oh, those are great. Yeah, I love how excited my dog Gracie is about just anything. Just whenever she comes in from the backyard, or could it could be her 15th time in the last two hours coming in. And she comes in like, I have to share some great news with you. You're not going to believe it. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, I talk to my cat. She identifies as gay. She's in her 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Um, not even that I don't know if it counts, but I don't know if it really happened. All I know is that when I was younger, my mom was concerned that I was being sexually abused, so she took me to a therapist. The conclusion ended up being that maybe something happened and I repressed it, or that maybe nothing happened at all. I don't know how to process any of that, since I don't know what, if anything, happened. But I do have a lot of strange behaviors and thoughts that would make more sense in the context of having been abused. It's frustrating that I'll never know for sure. And sadly, there are a lot of people who have that same situation and um, or people who have fragments of memories. And it, 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 is, uh, it is, it really fucks with your head. It really fucks with your head. Um, I got, she's uh, never been physically abused, but she's been emotionally abused. She writes, I got bullied horribly in middle school. I know it's, not that bad and that I'm old enough and then I should get over it, but I'm still working on processing my feelings about it. By the way, to that, I would say bullshit. There's no shoulds when it, when it comes to feeling, you know, process them, man, process them. It's not, it's, it's, it's not about a contest. There's no timeline for processing shit. You feel what you feel. It's how you handle the feelings that, that matters. Uh, the worst incident I can remember was when I was in a bathroom stall and the girls who bullied me were in the bathroom as well and they all went silent while I was peeing and were giggling at me. Then one of them asked me if I was a lesbian. Uh, that was the standard that they did or said. I said no and while I was still in the bathroom stall with my pants down, she started to slam her body against the stall door so I had to hold it so it would stay closed. She kept screaming, come on, I know you're a lesbian. I know you want to fuck me. Let me come in there and fuck you. Eventually, I got out of the bathroom, and while I left, she grabbed onto my leg and tried to pull me down. I don't like thinking about it. Well, my God, who would? That's horrifying. That's horrifying at any age, but especially, especially at that age. 
And, you know, the older I get, the more I see that so much of what people say to you when it's negative, they're really saying to themselves. Uh, any positive experiences with the abusers? No, not with the bullies. I still feel horrible because I can't forgive them. One of them is gay herself, and another has had some truly horrible things happen in her life since middle school, but I still sort of hate them. Darkest thoughts. I have OCD, so my darkest thoughts are pretty terrible and cause me a lot of distress. I think the worst one, which I've never actually mentioned to anyone because I'm so ashamed, is about having sex with my father. It bothers me because I am so close with him and he's a loving and supportive dad. It's just that my mind likes to throw things at me just to cause me distress. It's probably because my relationship with him is so important to me that my OCD tends towards that direction. It's better with med medication, thank God, because it used to be bad enough that I couldn't let him touch me at all because it would trigger all the intrusive thoughts. I felt horrible because I couldn't explain why I'd shrug away from his hugs during those times. But I didn't want him to think it was his fault. I get a lot of other sexual slash violent intrusive thoughts. Most of the sexual ones are about men that I admire and want to impress, especially in professional environments. I have to remind myself that these thoughts are just my mental illness and they don't have any significance. Uh, also wishing that I had been sexually abused or had memories of it. I picture horrible things happen happening to me often. I know rationally that these things are horrible, and it's not so much that I want them to have happened, but I want to have a reason to be the way I am. That's such a powerful sentence, and I think so universal. We want a reason for the way we are. And I think so much of life is various ways of trying to pursue that, to find out who am I? Why am I the way I am? Darkest secrets. The therapist uh, that thought I had dissociative identity disorder is definitely one. Also, my skin picking and hair pulling. It's mostly with my pubic hair, which adds an extra layer of disgusting to the whole thing. When I get stressed, I... I take tweezers and just pick at that whole area so I ended up with bumps and scabs and more shame. That would be a good name for a band, Bumps and Scabs and More Shame. I don't even want to know what their album cover would look like. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Orgasm denial and teasing have always been my big things. I've shared that with a partner before, and that was nice. I also dabble in some BDSM stuff, although I'm so inexperienced sexually that it's difficult for me to actually verbalize what I want. I lean submissive, but because my last partner was also submissive, I learned to really enjoy being more of a dom with her, so I'm more of a switch now. I like bruising and biting from either side of it. I just really like leaving a mark. I don't feel bad that bad sharing it because although I'm still a little awkward with sexual things, my last partner really helped me explore things more and was really encouraging when I would share my fantasies. I liked that she opened up about hers as well, so it was a balanced exchange. I really miss that. What, if anything, would you like to say? By the way, can I, I just love when somebody shares a sexual fantasy that most people would judge themselves for, and they don't judge themselves at all. That is such a great thing to read. As long as you're not hurting somebody, it, it, it can be so healthy and so empowering to, to just claim who you are inside. 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could express to my parents how grateful I am for them. I do tell them I love them and thank them for their support and encouragement, but it's difficult to actually capture just how wonderful they've been in my life. I've seen so many people go through shit with their parents, and I can't imagine how much worse my issues would be if they hadn't been there for me. We had our little issues, of course, because no family is perfect, but I think uh, the fact that my parents, especially my mom, were and are actually willing to acknowledge that they aren't perfect and try to learn from the times they hurt me is remarkable. A thousand times yes. A thousand times yes. I'd like to tell my ex that my clinginess isn't her fault and to apologize for how badly I reacted to our last breakup. She's a wonderful person, even if I realize that our relationship was mutually toxic and I want her to be happy. Thank you so much for that stuff. This is from the Love Survey. I introduced that a little coyly, didn't I? This is from the love survey (laughs) with a a very self-impressed smug smile on my face Uh, filled out by a vulnerability librarian and uh, they write, I love pulling weeds from the garden or flower bed when the ground is soft and pliable. I love hiking in the forest in May or June. I love biking down hills, up not as much, but reaching the top of a climb is wonderful. I love to drink coffee alone in the sunroom while everyone else in the house is sleeping safely. Oh, that's a great one. Uh, there, there, there are certain places where solitude is, you can just feel your body slowing down. I love those moments. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself young, depressed, and dumb. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. He doesn't elaborate. He's been physically and emotionally abused. When I was an overweight kid, my father would tell me whenever he was mad at me that I weighed just as much as he did in college. Anytime I didn't do exactly what I was told, I was kicked, hit with a yardstick, or fly swatter. Love was never shown in the home I grew up in. The only emotion I ever witnessed was anger any positive experiences. My father has given me a great work work ethic. I wonder what drives the work ethic because I think it's great having a good work ethic, but if it comes from fear or spite um, or, you know, grandiosity, it, it's, it complicates it. Darkest thought. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to shit on your work ethic. Darkest thoughts. Every morning I wake disappointed that I didn't die in my sleep. That should be a uh, actually an alarm chime that just says, sadly, you didn't pass away. Time to get on with your day. Darkest secrets. I was verbally abusive to the love of my life, which I have now lost, and I fear because of my abuse, she turned to using meth and is now an addict. Um, first of all, thank you for admitting that. A lot of people won't cop to having hurt other people. And the second thing I want to say is you're not responsible for her meth use. That is a decision of her own. Uh, and, you know, addiction is is not something I believe that one person can thrust onto 
another person. Um, you know, people who grow up in homes that are dysfunctional and, and abusive, it can predispose somebody who has the addiction gene to become an addict. But at least that, from what I understand, that's the common scientifically held belief. Uh, after she kicked me out, I realized that I was extremely depressed and took out my horrible feelings about myself on her. I've been fighting to get her back for the last three years. We have two kids together who now live with me full-time due to her meth use. My kids are a wreck, and I feel like this is still all my fault. That if I had known what was wrong with me or my parents uh, gave a shit about me, I wouldn't have ruined so many lives. I hate the person I was before and can't believe the destruction I caused or how I could think it was normal to treat someone the way I treated her. I am full of guilt to a point where I feel I am slipping back into depression again. I just want to fix all of the harm I caused. My ex was an amazing, beautiful woman when I met her, and I destroyed slowly, daily, with my words. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Sleeping with my ex-wife. Anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to. To my parents, why didn't you get me help when I was such an angry, violent child? You sent a weapon out into the world to destroy someone. Now you hate the person I destroyed because of how destroyed she is. When someone acts the way I did, I was crying out for help, but it fell on deaf ears. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to fix the damage I caused to my ex-wife and to once again be the family we both dreamed of being together. How do you feel after writing these things down? Massive amounts of guilt. Thank you for that, man. You went you went deep, brother. And, um, you know, sadly, we can't, we can't fix other people. But if you're listening... I would like you to focus on the fact that you're no longer that guy and now you are awake and you see your behaviors and you are working to be a better person. And that's the best apology that that we can make. And I imagine you've apologized to, to her. And if not, that might be something that um, helps you. But it will, in my experience, not take away someone from from being an addict that's up to her and I hope she gets help this is from the love survey filled out by calm person uh, she writes or he writes uh, they write the weight and warmth of my kitten when she sleeps on me the softness of yarn the self-expression of wearing a whole outfit that I've designed and hand crocheted myself I, why do I picture that just looking like a gigantic blanket with a hood? Perfectly ripe persimmons. A hot shower under a nice high-pressure shower head. The residual warm feeling after a hot shower when I'm wrapped in a big bathrobe. A nap on my moon pod beanbag. A long walk in the dark of the evening. An hours-long intellectual discussion leading to an optimistic view of the future. A vibrator that gives me an orgasm in minutes. Fuzzy slippers and onesies. Thank you for those. Those are awesome. This is Shame and Secrets survey filled up by a woman who calls herself that one fat chick. 
She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, it definitely counts. She writes, I don't know what all happened. I do know I was forced to shower with my grandmother well until I was in middle school. And when I started asking to shower alone, she was pissed. And pissed is in caps. Boundaries were absolutely not a thing. She slept in her underwear and would make me sleep in her bed a lot when my grandfather was gone. I've recently learned that my grandfather was known to abuse other little girls in the past, but supposedly not me, and I don't remember anything from him. There's other shit, like an uncle asking for head when I was a teen, but blah. Those would not be two words I would put after uh, an uncle asking for oral sex. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. Emotional abuse was my grandmother's bread and butter. I remember things like she and my grandfather would play good cop, bad cop if I was in trouble. He would yell at me, I'll make you go live with your father. And then she would yell at him, you know he doesn't want her. We're the only ones. Wow. If that's as good as the good cop gets, that is fucking bad. I would say it was like bad cop, bad cop. Uh... If I was difficult in public, she would say, well, you're not my granddaughter anymore, and walk away from me. So I would follow her around crying and begging her to please let me be her granddaughter again. Eventually, she did send me away, saying she didn't want me anymore. It's made it impossible to be confident in any relationship or living situation. I have to ask my fiancé for almost constant reassurance that I'm good enough and that he won't get fed up and move on. That that is can be a lot to put on a partner or a friend or anyone, and it's not saying that it's not good to get reassurance from people sometimes. But if there's a huge void in us, no other person is is going to completely fill that, and that's the the work that we got to do on ourselves. And I think a support group or therapy would be a great thing for you, especially people who've experienced fucked up shit like you have. I mean. Your grandmother was sadistic, fucking sadistic. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I have become a professional at cutting people out, like it sucks because there are good memories with everyone, but my fiance has shown me what I deserve and built me up enough that I don't tolerate less anymore. And here's the problem with letting all of the building up come from somebody else. Well, what if that person changes? And I'm not trying to freak you out, but it's a, it, it can be a house of cards when our self-esteem and our worth is wrapped up in what other people think of us. Darkest thoughts. I dream about driving off the highway and dying, killing myself in a not obviously suicide way so that maybe my family won't hurt as much. Darkest secrets. I was in parentheses, am, question mark, ashamed that I don't remember any overt sexual abuse. That, what your grandmother did is on the continuum of sexual abuse. My same age cousin was molested and is almost proud of it and would shame me saying things like, I was too fat and not pretty enough to be abused. Wow, your family is so fucking toxic and mean. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, being involved in a brutal gangbang with more guys than I can handle, all treating me like nothing more than a thing to fuck and mistreat. 
I don't feel much about sharing it, like I've shared it with my fiancé and we've considered trying to organize something. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my grandmother that she is the reason I can't believe in a God and that she will never get to see my children, so to stop acting so sad about my miscarriage, it wouldn't have made a difference if the baby lived. That is a Hallmark card right there. It would be in its own section, a very small section. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm cracking jokes. That's This is, you went so fucking deep in this thing. This is, this is so heavy, but also so, um, so profound. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I hadn't lost my baby. I wish I could move far, far away and never see anyone from my childhood again. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared most of it with my fiancé. He's as supportive as he can be, but he's, quote, healthy and has trouble understanding how deeply these things affect me. Not to mention, grab the eternal optimist. I don't know if there's a typo there. When I told him I thought showering with my grandmother may have been a form of incest, which it is, he tried to... Re- and, and by the way, you know, if somebody's showering with their, their three-year-old three year old kid, there's an age, you know, to which it, it's not a bad thing for uh, a kid and a, and a parent to be showering together. But in my opinion, like once the kid is, you know, able to take a washcloth to themselves, uh, there is no need to be in a shower with a caregiver. Uh, When I told him I thought showering with my grandmother may have been a form of incest, he tried to reassure me that she probably had my best interest at heart and was protecting me from my grandfather, but I don't believe that. No, I don't believe it either. And I think um, that's your well-intentioned fiancé trying to relieve you of pain. And he sounds well-meaning, but um, that is processing what what happened to you rather than minimizing it. I think is would be helpful. How do you feel after writing these things down? Surprisingly good. Thank you for giving people this opportunity. Well, thank you for filling that out. And yeah, sometimes it can be really liberating just putting into words what we feel, you know, because it can be so. You know, just like a big piece of fog that you can't quite get your hands on or describe, but when you when you have to describe it and sit down and write it or share with another person, it uh, it can it can be really life changing. And then finally, I want to read something from a uh, psych ward experiences. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself super-duper nihilistic expialidocious. Oh, that is fantastic. She was hospitalized three, yes, three times, her words, within a five-month span for severe depression, anxiety, drinking half of a 1.7-liter bottle of vodka every day for over three months, and three suicide attempts. Um... First time was total misery. Second was slightly better, almost fun, but still not great. 
third felt like a vacation. May have something to do with meds finally working and just a really good mix of patients and staff. I went to three different places, so that may have had something to do with it. I'll give this advice to anyone about to be or thinking of being hospitalized. Use it for what it is. You will not get intensive treatment. There's a chance you'll be bored out of your mind or worse, left with nothing to do but think. The other patients may concern you. On the whole, it is far from perfect, but if you are a threat to yourself or others, go. And go is in capital letters. An escape, any escape from the self-destructive place you are at is the goal. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, again, those are her thoughts, her opinions on based on her experience. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? I just want to say two months out of my last hospitalization, I got accepted into a master's program. I am now on my way to becoming a licensed mental health and addictions counselor. Your show is essential training and understanding what people go through. And if your listeners are frustrated with the state of mental health care, in parentheses, oh, I could tell you some stories myself. Please know that I was where you are now, and soon I will be in a place where I can make changes. So please keep telling your stories. Oh, that, that means a lot to me. And yeah, please keep telling your stories. I love that sentence. It's so true. I'm so grateful for the surveys that you guys fill out as hard as they are to read sometimes. Um, it's, it's, it feels like a lifeline to me, you know, not that I, I want to take my life or anything, but it, it lifeline in, in a sense of community and, and kind of shared struggle. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but if it doesn't, go fuck yourself. What do you think of that? How's that for the fireworks to the end of my show? Just turn on the Roman candle right in your face. Poof. Suck on that. Anyway, if you're out there and you feel unstuck, you are most definitely not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.